Good evening and welcome to Alcohol Recovery Scotland live Facebook and podcast. Um, uh, anyone that was joining us a couple of weeks ago, we had a few problems with the internet with Katie. Uh, we've had a couple of quick issues again tonight, so we're kind of hoping we're going to run right the way through with a full connection tonight. But good evening, welcome. I just want to jump straight in it, into it if I could. Um, very, very privileged tonight to have a lady with us uh, all the way from the States that I've been privileged and lucky enough to get to know over the last six months. Um, I'll introduce her in two seconds, but uh, she's, she knows the program. She understands the Sinclair method very well. Um, what I'll probably do is I'll bring her on. Uh, we'll get chatting and we can find out exactly what she knows and her knowledge is absolutely incredible on the subject. So I'd just like to introduce you to Bonnie Dwyer. Have I, have I pronounced it right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Hi, Bonnie. I'm doing well, thanks, Bruce. How are you? Very, very good. I was just saying, I think we had a quick drop off on the internet there, but it was only for a, a second or two. So okay, we should get into it. So. Okay, I'm just going to jump into it. I didn't tell you this two seconds ago when we were speaking, mm -hmm. but I normally start the the thing off with three very quick questions, if I could. Okay. And if you don't want to answer them, don't answer them. But it's just a, a little icebreaker to get things started. So. Okay. What is your favorite film? Love Actually. Love Actually. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen many films in my life. I don't watch many films. So, Which country have you never visited that you would like to visit? Australia. Australia. Sunshine. Mm -hmm. yeah. And your favorite animal? Ooh, a peacock. <clears throat> a peacock. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. And then at the end, we normally finish with three quick questions as well. Okay. So just for a bit of fun and just to, just to get Sounds us through good. the evening. Okay. I'm going to jump straight into it. Um, I know that you have a vast knowledge of the Sinclair Method, and I really want to get as much time listening to yourself and hearing your wisdom and your knowledge on it. Um, could you start just tonight, just giving us a quick background, uh, just a short history of, of how you got to where you are today and how you got to know about the Sinclair Method? Sure, sure. So uh, I'm 51 years old, and I was born and raised in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, here in the States, which is kind of known as a party town. Um, and I came from a family where alcohol was uh, pretty much available at all kinds of family events and, and just community events. And it was just something that I always aspired to, was to grow up and drink, you know? Um, I didn't, I didn't sneak too much alcohol as a teenager, but as soon as I left for college and moved to Boston, I availed myself of all the alcohol that was available to me. And um, that didn't seem to directly interfere with my life too much until my early 40s. So about 10, 11 years ago is when things got pretty bad. Um, and I, you know, by eight years ago, I was homeless uh, on the streets of Boston. I had kind of been bouncing back and forth between Boston, where I came to college and had my children, and New Orleans, where I had been born and raised. 
and things, bad decisions. And I, I found myself homeless on the streets of Boston in about late 2012, early 2013. And I believe it was in 2014 that I met a doctor at a bar and he told me about naltrexone and he, you know, I don't know if he told me about Claudia or if he, if I found it on my own, but it was around 2014, 2015 that I got my first naltrexone prescription and my first instructions on TSM. But besides that doctor, there was no support for that type of plan in my life. You know, everything was abstinence-based, abstinence-based, abstinence-based. So I found myself in and out of sober houses to get off the street, uh, in and out of detoxes, in and out of mental health wards here. And then I went traveling for a while um, because I found it was easier to be homeless in other countries than in Boston in the wintertime. Um, and, you know, my, my issue progressed. And even though I always had the availability of a, pres a prescription for naltrexone, I didn't put it all together. And then finally in 2018, I committed to abstinence with daily naltrexone. And that worked for me for about 14 months. And then in November of 2019, uh, which was 14 months ago now. Um, so I had 14 months of abstinence with daily naltrexone and now I've had 14 months of compliance on the Sinclair method. And I'm, I'm not sure how deep we're gonna go into what the difference between those two things is. But, um, you know, I'm no longer homeless. I have a beautiful home and I am building back the relationships in my life that even with all that abstinence and even with all that AA and even with all that 12 step work, I wasn't able to break through the walls I had built up around myself. But now I'm really through the benefit of people like yourself, Claudia Christian, Katie Lane really have people that are setting the bar so much higher than I ever would have set it before, you know, if, if, if abstinence were my only avenue to recovery. I think you're doing yourself a little disservice though, because I've heard you talking on the subject and very, very knowledgeable. Very, very knowledgeable. <laughs> well, but I, I gained that knowledge through reading, through reading all these books and and attending all these uh, Zoom meetups, you know. Um, and I have to say, my abstinence was pre-COVID, and my uh, TSM experience has been mostly during COVID. Uh, at least, you know, more than half of it's been during COVID, and. Um, you know, I'm really grateful to COVID for, you know, having the world take a pause so that we can prioritize things like coming to these meetups, you know, so that we don't have to go travel 30 miles in the snow to get to an AA meeting and then 30 miles back, you know, so yeah. that, um, that, that all types of recovery are available to us right in our own homes. Yeah. And that even the prescriptions now you can get your prescription online and, and have it delivered to your home too. And the support, you know, you can build these networks all over the world. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that, that was really interesting what you're saying about the difference between taking naltrexone through an abstinent-based program and taking it alongside alcohol. Just in case there's anyone listening tonight, if you've got any questions at all, please feel free just to put it in the comments. And if we get time, we'll we'll 
get to them later on. Um, but for anyone that doesn't know the Sinclair Method too well, it's, it's an alcohol reduction program alongside alcohol with the use of naltrexone. Um, what Bonnie was talking about is she was on naltrexone previously, but she was abstinent. Now, the Sinclair method is taking the naltrexone alongside alcohol initially and reducing that, that level down. So could you go into just a little bit about why the differences, Bonnie, just the mm -hmm. difference between taking it, did it work when you were taking it, the naltrexone alongside an abstinent-based program? Was it better using it alongside the Sinclair method? How did that kind of thing work? So here's here's how I would answer that question. Um, the abstinence-based daily naltrexone period of my life, let's say, um, I don't think I would have been able to accumulate 14 months without alcohol, without naltrexone. So, so I do think that either as a placebo or as an actual reduction in my biological uh, craving day by day for alcohol, the naltrexone helped. But what it never eliminated was that alcohol deprivation effect, which Dr. David Sinclair discovered in the late 60s, you know, while Bill Wilson of AA was still alive for another few years. And it was published in Nature in 1967, which Nature is a, apparently a, a big scientific journal. So that alcohol deprivation effect, I could have gone 20 years taking my naltrexone pill every morning and not drinking. But anytime alcohol was in my periphery, which in this country, it is all the time. In most countries, it is all the time. I mean, maybe not in, I don't know, Saudi Arabia or something, but I mean, in most countries, alcohol is pretty prevalent in the culture, yeah. even when I was traveling, right? So, so it would have been a struggle to just ignore the temptation yeah. with or without the naltrexone because that alcohol deprivation effect only goes away once you uh, proceed with compliance with the method that Dr. David Sinclair, the same person who discovered the alcohol deprivation effect, discovered how to use naltrexone to eradicate the alcohol deprivation effect. And the way that that works is you take a naltrexone pill, the same exact naltrexone pill that I had been taking for over a year, you take it an hour before your first drink of the day, every day for the rest of your life, as long as you're drinking that day. And if you're not drinking that day, you don't take it. And so, you know, it made perfect logical sense to me when it was first explained to me, but because I live in a culture that wants abstinence and, and you know, can say, okay, well, yeah, you can take your medicine, but you can't drink. Well, that's kind of like saying, you know, I don't even know what it's like saying, but it's just, it just doesn't make any sense, you know? Yeah. And so, so like, I think that, I don't think I ever would have ever had 14 months of abstinence. And, you know, I don't know that I ever will have 14 more months of abstinence in my life. But what I do know is that I won't have the alcohol deprivation effect ever again in my life. And that is what 
AUD is, is the manifestation of that alcohol deprivation effect. So um, because people without AUD don't feel deprived if there's no alcohol around, even if they drink a lot, if they don't have AUD, they don't feel deprived. But I think the alcohol deprivation effect is what distinguishes the AUD rats from the non-AUD rats. And it's what distinguishes me from anyone else in the world that doesn't immediately identify when they read that study from 1967 of, oh, wow, that's what's been going on with me ever since I was you know, 16 or 17 and, and started drinking regularly is that when I'm not drinking, I feel deprived. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, I was speaking to someone uh, today, it was, about the dry January. And they, they were talking to me and saying, well, well, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to try the dry January. And I said, no, don't, don't. Uh, and they said, but why? And I said, well, if someone is not dependent on alcohol, then dry January is a very, very good thing to do. Yeah. And if, it's, if it's for a charity, then give money to it, whatever you can mm -hmm. do to that side of it. But if you have any level of dependency, just like you were talking about, if, if someone goes a period of time without alcohol, the craving builds and builds and builds, which is the, the, mm -hmm. the that craving builds. And then eventually the craving wins. Someone has a blowout two or three mm -hmm. days, bang, bang, bang. Oh no, I've drunk too much again. They stop drinking. They have another two to three weeks. And before you know it, you have a, uh, a binge drinker and yeah. so I said listen I said if there's any level of dependency don't touch it give, give money to charity absolutely but yeah I mean I would even be more for like a dry July because I think January is the type of month for all of us where there's so many expectations the weather's usually crap in most parts you know our parts of the world anyway yeah. um, you know this year in the states we've got all kinds of other stuff going on in the background i mean this is this is the real news today bruce is is the sinclair method has been around since 1967 and we can all benefit from it but yeah. there's other people that have other you know priorities and so it's just setting up such completely unrealistic expectations in the middle of winter to force oneself if they have aud to deprive to, to deprive themselves yeah. Um, but like dry July, I think that would be kind of cool because that's when we know those, um, those like the sunshine and all the other things that get our endorphins going, you know, being able to be outside at the beach and doing other things is the way TSM works best. And yeah. we'll probably get into that, which is kind of like TSM 2.0 or at least 1.5 <laughs> or something. <laughs> It's something uh, I, you know, you know me. My background was alcohol and drug rehab management, and yeah. in abstinence-based programs. So when I saw the Sinclair method, all of a sudden I saw a program, and each each client that I work with at the moment, I see a very. The only way I can describe it is a very, very graceful way, and a very kind and gentle way of reducing someone's alcohol intake. Uh, a guy I spoke to today, I said, if you're reducing your alcohol intake without naltrexone, you get to a certain level and then the craving kicks in and then it goes back up again. But with naltrexone, the, that's dealing with the craving. So as you're reducing, that reduction process is actually quite easy uh, mm -hmm. as long as you do it slowly and surely uh, and you don't have the craving kicking in behind it. And then all of a sudden I thought it's such a nice – people are saying to me it's such a nice, gentle way of doing it. It's not so harsh. It's not a sudden stop. 
and then have to deal with all the emotions, all the psychological side, all that kind of thing. Did yeah. You well, it's as I was listening to you, the word that popped into my mind, um, it's there was there was a slogan when I was experiencing homelessness in Boston and pre pre TSM. Um, there's like a women's shelter and their motto was dignity is everything. And I feel as I was listening to you, the word that comes to my mind is just being able to drink with dignity, being able to drink to know I'm drinking safely, I'm drinking with doctor's orders, and I'm drinking to a point where I'm not going to cause those consequences to myself or others because yeah. I'm drinking compliantly, you know, and compliance, you know, it was like, I used to be, uh, one of the words that used to be used to describe me was defiant, defiant, defiant. So compliant is the opposite of defiant, right? Yeah. And now I take such comfort in compliance. And what I get as the payoff for that is the dignity that I had lost all those years when I was fighting the science, yeah. you know? And the science is the, the side that, again, I'm speaking to another uh, guy today and, and I was saying that the the science the, the neurological science of of what is happening in the brain in regards to we call it dependency in this country but AUD alcohol use disorder or alcohol dependency what is actually happening in the brain it suddenly dawned on me and I and I used to say to clients and I say well first and foremost we have to take responsibility for our actions and things like that mm -hmm. but the actual process of what's happening in the brain I say to clients, is it's not your fault. It, there is an imbalance. Right. There's an imbalance in the brain, um, and that can be dealt with with medication today. Um, mm -hmm. And it's yep. I'm just absolutely blown away with the not the the success rate is massive. I mean, it's compared to a conventional process, but the process as well, the gentleness, the the reduction that can be done at a pace that's suitable for each person. I anyway. <clears throat> it's good <laughs> you know it's good <laughs> yeah what how long have you been on naltrexone then you said so it's been over 24 months consistently like i said a few years back i had prescriptions and took it here and there but but uh my la let's say my last non-compliant drink of alcohol was uh oh sorry 28 months 20, yeah, so it was was September 11th of 2018, um, and then my my TSM start date is November 11th of 2019. Yeah. So yeah. So last week it was 14 months on TSM. You know, yeah. which which now exceeds my 14 months on naltrexone with abstinence. Yeah. Wow. And it's. I think when I when I look back at it, I, I know that uh, people will speak to me and they'll they'll sort of say, "Well, it's, it's, you're still drinking, you're still doing this, you're still doing that." Um, I fully respect and understand uh, abstinence-based programs, uh, and they work very well for for certain people. Um, and if it works for them, I've always said, if standing on your head repeating the alphabet backwards works, I will support it one hundred percent. Um, but what I'm finding is that the clients are coming on board and I'm just, when you actually see it, when you hear about the whole concept, it sounds wrong because that's what we've been trained in the past. And it just, it's, this is just, it seems all upside down and inside out. 
But then mm -hmm. when you start seeing the results and meeting people that it's working for and it's changing those the lives, it's absolutely incredible. Um, so what I was going to say was <clears throat> your number one tip on TSM, apart from compliance, because I know that. Okay. Be <laughs> uh, my second tip would be get support. Yeah, I mean, compliance is obviously number one. My second tip would be get support. And my third tip, which I have to be honest, I don't always follow myself, but I'm kind of holding myself accountable by saying it, is track your drinks somehow, whether it's on, on an app, which there are free apps to do this, or in a little notebook or something, um, or on the back of your palm, whatever, but track your drinks. Um, because uh, another person in our in our in our group said, I think yesterday or the day before, anything that they don't want to do, they know is probably good for them. So I think a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to track my drinks, but that should tell you. I, and I, I compared it to, well, I don't want to balance my checkbook either, but what's the result if I don't balance my checkbook? I'm going to overdraw my account, right? So I feel like taking the pill and our, the compliance is money in the bank, but the support and tracking the drinks is what really pays the dividends and what really moves things forward. So, and I think that support side, we were just talking about that before we came on was the, the support side of things. And it's the, the one thing we want, uh, the Sinclair method has a 78% success rate. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, obviously the one thing we want is a, as much awareness and as much knowledge and put out there to doctors and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the, the side effects of growth, not growth, but of it becoming a very common thing is that a lot of people then get access to obviously the medication, which which is an, in this country, it's what we call an NHS licensed medication. Mm -hmm. um, but then people don't have the support to, to go with it. Right. Um, and and for some people they can they can work it that way, but for some people it's a there's a very set process of actually going through the whole thing, and and you were saying earlier on that you get a support from Claudia Christian in the states and and Katie. I do well. There's a lot of support that I have, um, and during my 14 months of abstinence, um, which was preceded by other periods of you know, 89 days of abstinence or 60 days of abstinence, things like that, um, with or without naltrexone, I can't even remember. But but throughout those those abstinence years, let's call them, um, I submitted to the requirements of abstinence that one join different fellowship groups, let's say. We don't need to name those. Um, so, you know, I did develop friendships among abstinent people and I did continue to study abstinence-based literature as well. So I didn't want to eliminate that part from my life because, you know, that, that way does work for some people. But I can tell you, even when I divulged to people that I was taking naltrexone with abstinence, in those other abstinence-based groups, there was sort of a, oh, well, that's okay. Not everybody can just, you know white knuckle it like I do. And it was just like, oh man, you know, because I even, even then, um, 
you know, one of the one of the phrases in this other fellowship is you've got a head full of AA and a bottle and a belly full of booze. And it was like I had um, like a mouthful of AA because, you know, I was hearing it and, and talking about it, but a brain with the science in it that knew this isn't going to work. You know, and that has nothing to do with whether or not I believe in God. It has to do with the fact that as with any other illness, which the AA big book describes alcoholism as an illness, I call it AUD, they call it alcoholism. As with any other illness, yes, spirituality is an important part of recovering from cancer, of recovering from anything, but without a doctor, you know, you're not going to get that far. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that you don't have enough faith or that you're not committed enough to it. It means that some medical problems need a medical solution. And that's what the Sinclair method is. So I, I feel like I strayed from your question. So bring me back on course here. I feel like there's something in there that I didn't answer that I really wanted to answer. So yeah. But what, what you just said as well, I, I think is also very, very important, is that that one of the, uh, the our motto for the, the for the work we do is saving lives, supporting families, and changing perceptions on addiction. Mm -hmm. um, because in all the work that I did in the past, it wasn't said directly, but the processes were all put in place, and if someone relapsed, then it was a case of, well, you relapsed. It was your choice to relapse. Then, therefore, you get into the cycle of it's your fault is, is really what, where it kind of leads to. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not meant directly or badly, I don't think, but that's what that's the what abstinent-based stuff creates. Mm -hmm. um, what I've learned now is because it is a neurological imbalance that is a medical issue, it's not a moral failing. It's, it's not a moral shortfall. Right. It's not. And once someone does, let's say, once someone commits to TSM, once someone has the information and has the prescription and has the support, um, when they forget to take their pill and drink anyway, I, I, I strive to have compassion. I strive to, you know, let them know not to be derailed by it. Um, and I do admit that, that there were times when I say I haven't had a non-compliant drink, I haven't had an intentionally non-compliant drink. There were times when I forgot to take the pill until after my first sip or after my first drink, but I took it immediately. Right. So yeah. whenever, whenever somebody, has a day or more of drinking without the pill, you know, I, I strive not to let my frustration or my fear or my irritation come through. Um, because this program is a dignified way and it is a forgiving way and it is a, but at the same time, there are people out there that are never going to get that prescription in their hand and you have it and you're forgetting to take it. Like, come on, you know, don't, don't mess up the statistics here. Don't make us go down to 77% or 76% effective. Like, come on, just take the pill. So, yeah. 
and that's I think that's so important as well. And it's 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 actually one I, I, we're lucky enough. Um, I don't know if you know Dr. Peron, mm-hmm. uh, who's on the C three. She's a coach on one of the yeah. C3, the C three Foundation. She's going to be coming on in about three weeks' time, I think. Oh, good. Um, one thing I remember her saying when I first heard about the program was that there was there's two sides: there's craving and habit. And the craving is your body's physical requirement for a substance, alcohol in this case. Mm-hmm. And the habit is the habitual, psychological, emotional, circumstantial reason why people drink. So mm-hmm. when the naltrexone deals with the craving side of it, then th- that then leaves the habitual, psychological, emotional side. Right. And when I heard that, all of a sudden I thought, wow, I thought, the the rehabs where I worked at were very 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 good at doing the habitual side and mm-hmm. group work and everything along that side, but they didn't deal with the neurolog what was happening in here. And what I've found is that when you deal with what's in happening in here, everything else actually become you don't the craving is not. I remember in rehabs we'd have people coming in and you could see them sitting in a group session. Or a group meeting on some on a different subjects, but the craving was driving them crazy that they didn't they couldn't take anything in, mm-hmm. um, and that habit and the craving side of it is just absolutely blew blew me away. Um, yeah, um, you know I think to the extent that you said you know changing perceptions, I think changing language is really important too. That's why. Whenever I slip up and say alcoholic or alcoholism, I always try to say AUD, AUD, AUD. Um, and if we stop, it, you know, craving kind of seems like a like a desire, right? Craving seems like oh, you know, uh, like a like a weakness or something. But if we if we call it what it is scientifically, which is deprivation. You know what I mean? Like when I was on the streets homeless for years, you know, was I craving a drink? Probably because I had the alcohol deprivation effect if I didn't have alcohol, but I was sleep deprived, you know? And when 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 something that becomes essential to an organism, such as sleep, yeah. is is deprived from them, they cannot function, right? Yeah. Yep. So needing to rest is not a luxury or a weakness or anything. It's a fundamental, you know, it's, it's what's created in, in an organism. Now, some organisms, maybe they only need to sleep 10% of the day. Maybe that's how they are built. Maybe some humans only sleep a couple hours a day. I don't know. But for me, without a minimum of six hours of restful sleep, I became a crazy person. So, so when we, when we use the term, you know, sleep deprivation, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. I remember that time when I was like, you know, had jet lag for 24 hours or whatever. People can relate to that. So, so when you call it a craving, people that don't have AUD are like, oh yeah, well they have a craving. I don't, you know, I can take it or leave it. But but when it's like depriving you of something that your body needs because you can die from alcohol withdrawal, you can Yeah, and absolutely. that's why I really appreciate how you are very frank with people who come in all gung ho. Oh, I'm going to have my first alcohol free day, you know, three days after starting TSM. No, 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 no. You, you can't shock your body that way, yeah. you know, and that's why it would be wonderful if there were at some point places where people could go to have supportive and compliant 
you know, uh, if not, if not detoxification, you know, like, uh, less toxification or, you know, yeah. gradual, gradual yeah. detoxification. I, mean, I, I was saying to someone the other day about, uh, just for anyone who, if anyone's listening in that isn't, or is, is new to the Sinclair method, um, the program we find works very, very, very well with what I would say medium to heavy drinkers and then chronic drinkers. It will still work with chronic drinkers, but again, it's subject to people taking the medication. So they still have to be able to take the medication. So it just depends on their circumstance and whether they can do that. But I spoke mm -hmm. to someone the other day and, and I said, I would love to, in this country, have a place where we could bring people, we could detox them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then if they get the desire to then have a drink down the track, then introduce the, the Sinclair method to them then. So, mm -hmm. um, and do it, do it that way. So we can then, and then keep them in a safe environment where yeah. this sounds completely upside down and inside out to, to most people, but have a, a center where people could come, you get your medication from a, a professional nurse or doctor yeah, and then have a, prescribed not prescribed but a an amount of alcohol to allow the process to work mm -hmm. in in mental health here in the states and i think it could be in europe as well there's something that was that was built up called peer respite so when someone either didn't qualify for like an inpatient psychiatric stay or or couldn't afford it or whatever um there are people that have been through that same experience and there's a place that people can go for three to five days, maybe 14 days or something. So I think if, if we came up with like a peer TSM place, you know, or places yeah. that, that people could just call up and say, look, I'm starting TSM. I don't want to do it alone. You know, and, and someone I, I had actually thought like, because I've done a lot of Airbnb in my traveling, I had actually thought it was something that we could kind of connect with Airbnb on. And one of the other guys on the group kind of was thinking along the same lines. I don't know. I don't know how much of an appetite Airbnb would have for something like that, but yeah. you never know. It's 2021. Anything is possible, right? 2020 is over. We, we all have to think outside the box and, and move things forward after the year that we kind of lost. And I think things are moving on and it's, the thing that I'm so excited about coming from where I came from and then finding out that there was a, there was a program that had such a high success rate. That was a medication based, um, mm -hmm. I think doctor orientated. Uh, I work very closely with a doctor here. So we're not just, this, this isn't something we, we just came up with last week mm -hmm. uh, to have that side of things was absolutely mind-blowing to me that and then all of a sudden so my goal now is obviously to work with clients but like you in the states i know claudia in the states katie in the states anyone who's been around the sinclair method for a while that the fact that we, we need to get it out there as much as we possibly can because you know yourself better than anyone probably it's saving lives mm -hmm. uh, literally yeah. saving lives um so yeah so it's Sorry, I kind of went off on one there as well. So no, no. Go, <laughs> but it's, yeah. Any other wisdom on the Sinclair method? Oh, uh, yeah. So, so when you had asked me before about tips, and obviously compliance is number one, 
and uh, you know, support is number two, whether that's one-on-one -on -one support or group support or what have you. Um, it could even be Facebook groups where you're typing with other people, you know, anonymously. It, you know, it doesn't need to be face-to-face. -face. It doesn't need to be voice-to-voice. -voice. It can be um, as intimate or as detached as you want it to be. And then um, tracking the drinks. But as far as the habits go, um, switching your drink, putting ice in your drink, you know, and, and it, again, it, 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 you, you, I think the way you described it is there are, there are moderate drinkers, there are heavy drinkers, and then there are chronic drinkers. So for someone who's a chronic drinker that may or may not be able to convert to the TSM protocol based on how serious their drinking is, you know, that person might be drinking like a bottle of, you know, a vodka every day straight without any mixer. Yeah. So if that person would start by, I said, I said to someone the other day, well, why don't you switch to gin? And they're like, oh, and I was like, okay, so if that's your reaction to switching to gin, that's what you should do. Even for a day, just, you know, start to start to just, you know, micro change the habit, you know? Uh, so you're still going to have the same amount of alcohol in your body but it's not going to taste the way you're used to tasting it going down. And I highly, I highly doubt that you're going to all of a sudden start to love gin just because you try it. But maybe that'll be the difference between you having a whole bottle and three quarters of a bottle tomorrow. Yeah. And then maybe, you know, maybe you'll try a beer the next day and maybe you'll get so full by the carbonation in the beer that you'll end up having the equivalent of a quarter of what you had had a week ago when you were drinking the full yeah. bottle. Um, and so again, the more resistant someone is to something, that's when you hone in and you're like, oh, wait, okay, try it. You know, I dare you. That's the challenge. It's not the dry January. It's just challenge yourself to just do one little thing that's outside your comfort zone or that really kind of gives you a intense reaction and see what happens if you do it anyway. Um, you know, I've done a lot of like, uh, trauma work. And what I was told by some very world-renowned scientists who study recovery from trauma is whatever you're most afraid of, you need to find a way to get yourself as close back to that or something like it and get that feeling going in your body so that your body remembers not the, not the trauma, but the more recent experience of being able to overcome whatever that danger is or whatever that fear is or whatever that um, maleficence is or whatever. Yeah. I can sit and listen to you all night. <laughs> Do we have any questions? Has anybody asked me? I was going to say, if anyone has any questions, uh, we've got a lot of uh, comments. Um, Walter said, go, Bonnie. Oh, go, Walter. <laughs> um, Joe, so sad that this method has been around for so long but not widely taken up. What I'll probably do on another uh, live feed or podcast is go into that subject in a bit more detail. There's a very specific reason why that hasn't happened. Um, yeah. Uh, which, that's, a, that's a whole book in and of itself, yeah. Um. So yeah, so just lots of different cost, uh, just comments on here, and 
And a guy, William, says he's been alcohol dependent and he's been six years sober. So well done, William. Absolutely fantastic. Um, like you said, we we are huge, huge, huge supporters of the Sinclair Method because we've seen the results and the success. But um, I've got very good friends who have been through abstinence-based programs and are sober today. And at the end of the day, <clears throat> if, we f if you can find a program that works for you, then stick to it and, and go for it. Um, all we're saying is that the, the Sinclair method is the best that I've seen yet. Um, now that doesn't mean it works for every single person, but it, it works. It works for successfully, and I have experience of it with clients with for seventy eight percent of of the clients I work with, and I've never seen never seen success like that before. Right, and I I love that that seventy eight percent is so consistent, beginning in Finland proceeding to Florida and now in our newest laboratory for TSM in Scotland, it's, you know, I, I had to do, I had to do my statistics. I, I keep yeah. track of everything. And I, I did my statistics, statistics. I can't really say it. Mm -hmm. um, just October, October, November last year. Mm -hmm. And it came at 77%. Uh, ah, okay. Because I wasn't sure. And mm -hmm. people say, how do you how do you calculate that? Mm -hmm. uh, so well, people who have got in this country the safe drinking level or the NHS recommend 14 units a week. So mm -hmm. it was clients who had either become abstinent or were drinking below on a consistent basis mm -hmm. below 14 units. Um, and uh, I just I'm still to this day two years down the track still absolutely stunned. But but. Then speaking to people like yourself, I haven't been through the program, so speaking to people like yourself, that it's just amazing listening to you. Well, it's amazing listening to you too, Bruce. Um, and as I'm as I'm hearing 77%, I'm like, oh no, I wish it was 78 or 79%. <laughs> and I'm wondering if in the context of the people you work with, uh, I know that um, Nalmafine, is more difficult for a lot of people to tolerate yeah. and also requires a longer gap between taking the pill and the first drink. Could it be that some of your people or more a higher percentage of your people were on nalmaphene at one point or, or currently versus naltrexone and that that could, that 1% could be accounted for just by the fact that nalmaphene isn't as easy to tolerate as naltrexone. Cause I know there was a time when nalmaphene was, Available, but naltrexone wasn't in the UK. Or it still yeah. is. Yeah, still, okay. still mm -hmm. available. Um, well, again, without going into too many, obviously, I'm a live live feed here, so or a, a recorded feed. Um, mm -hmm. What I found was that the number one cause why the program didn't work was because a partner, a family member, or somebody had pushed someone against their will to go onto the program. Um, okay. So, and the, what causes the issue there, obviously, is they then don't become compliant and it doesn't work. Right. Um, so right. The number one I had one, one client who, due to illness, it, it, she didn't carry on. Uh, another, all the rest of them was because a partner or someone had basically pushed them onto the program. Okay. Uh, almost every single one of them. So with that in mind, I then realized that the people who – wanted to come on the program who, who were compliant. I, I can't say this when it's being recorded, but it's very, very high. 
Oh yeah, yeah. very very yeah. high. Um, and it's, and, it's, and that makes sense to me why you started the friends and family group too, because mm -hmm. if you can get those people that are pushing the other people on board to see it how the person that's actually doing CSM might see it or to or to allay their concerns or to have them change some of their habits, yeah. then it's going to be more successful for the whole family or whoever's, you know, involved. And, and the one thing I find with <coughs> working with families is that just like the majority of people who are caught in independency, mm -hmm. most people that we speak to today do not understand what is the neurological process in the brain? What causes the, the addiction? What, what mm -hmm. causes it? And when I speak to families and I explain to them, say, listen, they're not bad people. They're under the influence of alcohol. People do things they shouldn't do, and that's a responsibility they need to take take hold of. Mm -hmm. But the, the addiction process in the brain is not their fault. And I explain to them, this is why, this is how that process works. Mm -hmm. And so many family members then go, oh, wow, that, that's why they can't stop. It's, they're not just being bad. They're not being, they're not morally, there's not a moral shortfall. Mm -hmm. There's not even a spiritual shortfall. Um, right. It's, it's a, there is a chemical, I've got epilepsy. It's like epilepsy. It's, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. Once the family members understand that. Um, sorry, I was just going to ask, uh, Joe's just asked one quick question. Mm -hmm. uh, is it possible to outdrink the method? Sometimes it seems to work and other days it doesn't. Is this normal? Yeah, in my experience, um, it's possible to outdrink it, but it's not necessary to outdrink it. So, you know, I think I don't think that when you outdrink the method, it means that the that the medication is not working. I also don't think it means you're doing anything wrong. I think it's just, you know, the nature of science is experimentation. So if on your extinction experiment any given day, you decide, oh, let me see if I can still drink this whole bottle of vodka. Yeah, you probably can, but you're not gonna get the euphoria from it. So you're not gonna have the compulsion to try that experiment again anytime soon. So yeah, I think it's possible. And I probably tried that experiment a couple of times early on myself. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we're around people we haven't seen in years. I mean, maybe not recently, but you know, you're at a wedding or you're at some kind of a big party or something, or you're on vacation on a cruise and there's an open bar. And so you're like, Oh, well, why am I going to let all this free alcohol go to waste? Okay. So you drink a lot more. That doesn't mean you're back in your AUD. As long as you were compliant, no matter how much or how little you drink that day, you're still, actively pursuing extinction through TSM. And I don't think we really defined exactly what extinction is. I think we all have a different definition of extinction. Um, Bruce, do you, do you have a definition that you like for extinction? Extinction is just the, the point that people will get to. Uh, again, I asked this in the early days as well. And extinction is the point that you get to. The simple way to describe it is when you are in complete control of when mm -hmm. and how often you drink mm -hmm. and most importantly the thought patterns uh it's not a constant think thought pattern about when's my next drink when's this happening when's that happening you can go a day or two days or three days and think oh i've never even thought about drink mm -hmm. um, that's when 
we don't have time tonight to go into but the breakdown of all the pathways have, have all happened and um yeah it's it's like you said it's one one of those subjects where you, you mm -hmm. kind of yeah so there's one of the one of the facebook groups where people declare extinction and and i always when we talk about you know oh am i going to declare extinction you know when, when i saw claudia recently she said oh it's uh, you know it sounds like you're in extinction and i was like i prefer to just say my aud is an endangered species i'm not going to really i don't need to declare extinction <laughs> it's it's an endangered species it's probably not going to rear its ugly head anytime soon it's probably not going to be a predator anymore but um for me i i'm happy to continue on the journey to extinction um you know i, I don't need to declare it because um I mean, the, and, then, and then the other thing I would say is, you know, addiction is perhaps a controversial word when we talk about changing language around this. But um, to me, the simplest definition of addiction that I've ever heard is um, the continuation of an action or inaction despite negative consequences. And I can tell you that my negative consequences from drinking uh, had already ended before I started TSM because of that, because of that um, 14 months of naltrexone plus abstinence. So the last negative consequence I can directly attribute to consuming alcohol for me was September 10th of 2018. Right. So, so like, even if I drink more than I plan to, um, that's not because I couldn't have drank less. It's because I chose to drink more. And the negative consequence is I'm going to have to drink a lot of water and maybe take an aspirin the next day to relieve a headache. Right. But that's just, you know, if you trip down the stairs, drunk or sober, you're going to have a negative consequence of like a bruise on your leg, and you're just going to get over that. But, but the real negative consequences, the homelessness, the overdrawn bank account, the completely chaotic and abusive and dangerous relationships and things that I did, all these things that were just surrounding me for a long time, they don't exist anymore. They just, they don't exist. Like my boundaries are so strong and my role models that I've found through TSM in particular, um, I do have some people that I got close to in AA as well, but the, the, the people that I have as role models in TSM, they're just such amazing people. And they've just taught me not to limit myself in my expectations of myself and not to let my past, no matter how gruesome it was, uh, you know, repeat itself for any reason much less for AUD reasons when this method has worked so perfectly for me, you know. And just on that point, again, don't answer this question. If you don't want to, just say it, just pass. Mm -hmm. um, you're training, I know you're training to do something at the moment uh, with a job situation. Are you happy to say that or do you want to just pass on that one? Um, so I'm in law school. Is that what we're talking about? Or yeah. Yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. So I started law school last uh, 
<clears throat> August when I was about nine or 10 months into TSM. And uh, I'm about to start my second semester of law school. I've also gotten certified as a peer specialist and I'm working toward my state certification as a recovery coach. I have all the um, academic requirements uh, of that. And my hope is to get my law degree and be able to work in the court system with people who are uh, experiencing issues around their AUD, um, as well as other mental health issues, trauma, depression, anxiety, etc. Um, and yeah, I have a few different yeah. part-time uh, job type things. I, I wasn't sure what you were getting at. I've got so much going yeah, on. It's like the only reason I was getting at that was obviously <laughs> you started off by saying that where you were years ago on the mm -hmm. And now you're in a place where you're, you're studying law, you're doing coaching training, you're doing all that side of things. Yeah. To, to see that journey is just, to me, that's that's what the whole process is all about. I mean, to, to see stories yeah. and lives and things being affected and changed is just. And I would have never had the confidence to take on the risk and the debt and the, you know, the, the obligation and the commitment to law school during my abstinence phase because that alcohol deprivation effect was so strong and uh, and law school is so stressful yeah. that i knew it would have just building a house of cards that would collapse yeah. and so now my foundation is so firm that as long as i have my pill i don't need to worry about alcohol i can just focus on my work and focus on sharing my experience and my knowledge with others so that and what we have to do we'll have to get you a scottish degree and then you can come and work in scotland for a while as well so i am down with that plan okay three quick questions again mm -hmm. movies or theater what do you prefer theater theater diamonds or cash Cash. <laughs> now I've got to give a guy called Gavin Bell from Edinburgh the credit for this one. He mm -hmm. is a Facebook um, marketer. <laughs> he does marketing through Facebook mm -hmm. and very, very good at it. Um, I heard this on one of his uh, podcasts mm -hmm. and I thought I'll just throw this one in as well. Would you rather hug an orangutan or a panda? Or neither. A panda. I know the panda might eat me or something, but I don't know. <laughs> Gavin always used to say on his ones, he said, everybody answers panda. And he yeah. said, one guy answered orangutan once. He went, yes, fantastic. <laughs> so um, I'm afraid we've run out of a bit of time here. Okay. Um, I'm just running a little bit along the bottom just with our email address. AlcoholRecoveryScotland.co.uk and the phone number there. So if anyone has any questions or wants to get in touch, even if it's just for a chat or a discussion about how the Sinclair method works, more than happy to do that. Bonnie, um, I wish we had two hours. You're going to have to come back again. I will. I'll always be your first, Bruce. <laughs> Fantastic. Just a quick thing as well. Next week, uh, some of you will know Katie Lane, 
who is uh, embodydaily.com. She's got Facebook pages, sorry, a YouTube channel about the Sinclair Method. Um, she's on with us next Wednesday at 6 o'clock UK time. The week after that, I am very, very, very pleased to announce uh, that Claudia Christian has agreed to come on. So Claudia is going to come and join us on the 3rd at 6 o'clock, but I'll put that all that up on Facebook. And then Dr. Perron is on the week following that. And then Bonnie will need to be back again because we need to hear more of your wisdom. There's lots of things that we need to go back about and, and talk about. Um, but first and foremost, well done. Absolutely. Thank you. I would love to see you interview Walter, by the way. I know Walter was, was on, so I would love to see you interview Walter as well. He's still here. Thanks, guys, for this. All right, Walter. Throwing down the challenge. <laughs> and I'm going to see if I can get some UK guys as well. We were just talking before that here in the UK, um, we're a bit more reserved about being live mm -hmm. on, on things. But, again, I'm going to speak to a few people here in the UK and see if we can get some. You can have like a kind of like a, a, a disguise on them and disguise their voice if they <laughs> do that way. And then we we, do, we will upload all this onto a podcast as well. So um, we'll put out information for that as well. So if you want to just hang around a second, Bonnie, mm -hmm. and I'll uh, I'll just finish up here. But thank you very much to everyone. Thank you for all your your messages. I hope we've kind of covered it as much as we can. You can't really go into TSM and in this short period of time, but there'll be more questions and more things. Um, if you're in the States, we, the Zoom meetings in the States, embodydaily.com, Bonnie runs one of those meetings. Um, you're more than welcome to jump onto any of them. Um, any questions, anything, please get in touch. Um, it's saving lives is the only way I can describe it. Um, it's my life. Yeah. You've heard from Bonnie tonight. Uh, we hear these stories daily, um, all the time. So if you know anyone or you're in a situation yourself, please get in touch and we're more than happy to chat to you. Okay, I think that's us for the night. Thank you very much. And we'll see everyone next week. Thanks, Thanks. Bruce. Bye. Thanks, Bonnie.